0: Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. That really is what Paul wants to teach us tonight in Romans eight thirty-one through 39, which is our section for today. We're going to be closing up Romans chapter 8. And the idea is this that God's love for you and God's love for me isn't dependent upon our ability to keep promises, but rather His ability to keep promises. And Scripture reinforces the reality that God is faithful and He always, time and time again, keeps His promises. And so tonight's message really is good news for those of us that, I'll say it this way it teaches us that that we're loved and that gives us the freedom of fear of losing our salvation because of something that happened on Friday or whatever it may be. In uh, 2001. Elton John, not that I listen to much of his music, um, or (laughs) any of his music, but he released a music video um, in his song, I Want Love. Raise your hand if you've heard the song before. You're about to, so uh, y'all raise your hand later. In a surprising move, um, he asked his editor um, and producer to do something interesting, to cast a man named Robert Downey Jr. Now, uh, his job was simple. In one take, try to lip sync the whole music video. Now, this was surprising because at the time in 2001, he was just coming off of a string of years of, let's say, bad behavior. He was arrested um, a bunch of times for, if you know his story, for cocaine and heroin and marijuana and a plethora of things like that. And this video was filmed right after he got out of prison. Now, his life ended up being completely out of control, and he actually kind of is a man, or at least the video is a picture of a man who had lost everything. And who had gone from being the popular one, right, the rich and famous one, to somebody that's lost everything in their life and wanted no one, no one wanted to associate with them. And so in the music video you're about to see, I'm only going to show you like a minute and 20 or so seconds of it. I want you to just pay attention to the lyrics and the the surrounding of where he's walking, all right? Check this out. impossible All right, you can give me some lights. All right, so here's why I appreciate this video. I came across it, actually. It was an illustration I heard another pastor use for actually something else. And what I actually preach about this video is kind of the longing watching him mouth these words walking through a completely empty house. Literally, there's nothing on the windows. There's no furniture, no animals, no other people, literally nothing in this entire house. The video is like four or five minutes long. He continues to walk into every single room of this mansion, and not one thing is in there. And I think the symbolism here is hard to miss. And now this song ended up blowing up in kind of one of his most famous songs. Why? That's because I think the, this, it, it kind of speaks to the desire of love resonated with most people. I mean, truly, I think we all hunger or we have this need, right? That, 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 and that's because I think God designed us. And when he created us, he designed us in such a way in which we require, we, we are animals that are contingent upon love, needing love, perfect love, more importantly, God's love. I think the problem is we live in a broken and imperfect world. I think each one of us, right, can point to examples of broken love, uh, love betrayed, and love neglected, probably in our own personal lives. And that's because you and I, we are surrounded by brokenness. You and I are surrounded by imperfection. And so it's easy for us, right, to expect the same thing of God that Robert Downey Jr. experienced from the world around him. In that moment, it was rejection. It was isolation. It was a sense of emptiness because of his kind of performance, So we may not maybe articulate it this way or even be fully aware of it, but maybe you found yourself wondering if you've messed up one too many times and now God is kind of done with you. It's kind of like, he's like, you shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have watched that, shouldn't have done this with that individual, and then he's, I'm I'm done. You've done this too much, you've sinned too much, I'm over you. Kind of think of it this way, if God knows everything about me, every thought, action, every deed of everything, how could God possibly love me knowing everything that I have ever done? How? But when you think about it, that's how imperfect, fallen, and broken, that's how an imperfect, fallen, and broken world would handle love. Imperfectly, inconsistently, with all the wrong motivations. I think it's what our culture, we've grown up kind of in our culture, and we're trained to kind of expect. And so my encouragement, my prayer today, as we read these verses today, I want you to intentionally remind ourselves that these verses are not describing some idealistic vision or uh, uh, that isn't actually attainable. Not only is when we read about God's love for us, Is he's the only one that can actually deliver this type, but rather he he is this type of love that he does deliver on this type of love for you and for me. So Paul's question, our question is this: Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Or worded differently is can we lose his love for us? Or maybe a different way is can you, can we lose our salvation? Tonight, we're going to discover in perhaps one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture that God rules out any room for debate or for confusion or for concern, that there is nothing that you can do, nothing that has happened to you, and nothing that you will do or have done that can separate you from Christ. And so in these verses that we're going to go through today, Paul makes four arguments, four arguments and four maybe, yeah, proofs that there can be, that nothing can separate you and I from God. Point number one is this. We're going to read in verse 31 and 32. Point one is this. God is for us. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? His idea is, look, he's proven this over and over and over and over. And most significantly, he's proved that he cares for you, that more importantly, he likes and loves you by giving us his son. I kind of just want to stop and pause and think about that reality once again. I would like to think, right, in some creationism, kind of like moment that I would like give my life for somebody, even a stranger, but more importantly, maybe even someone that I love, right? I know, however, I can't think of a situation where I would sacrifice my daughter, Noelle. I I can't think of a situation, right? I mean, I love you guys, right? But if the ship is sinking, if the house is burning, and I have to choose between you and I have to choose between my daughter, Noelle, even on her most disobedient and rebellious days, there wouldn't be any hesitation. I'm going to be choosing her life. I mean, even if she wanted Even if she wanted to give her life for someone else's, I would step in and try to inhibit that reality from happening. I heard the story of a little girl who needed an operation. She needed O-negative blood, and the hospital didn't have any, but her twin brother had O-negative blood. The doctor explained to him that it was a matter of life and it was a matter of death. He sat quietly for a moment and then tears in his eyes said, okay, and then said goodbye to his parents as he walked into the next room to give the blood. The doctor writes this. He said, I didn't think anything of it until after we took his blood, he asked, So, doctor, um, when do I die? This whole time he thought he was giving his life for hers. I kind of just want us to kind of stop for one second. How often have we spoke of God giving his son and kind of gotten used to that idea and forgotten how incredible that really is? Right, that the same God who knows your past, the same God that knows every act of rebellion that you and I have ever committed, sent his son to die so that you and I could live. I mean, think of it this way, right? If God has truly done that for us, then there isn't anything too costly for him, anything too big that he can't move, anything you've ever done that would now separate you from him if he has given you already the most valuable thing that was to him, right? That the God who made it all, well, he hasn't left it all. And if you are in Christ, it is a done deal that you are saved forever because you are just, you are right before God, the creator, forever. I want you to follow with me in verse 33. Who thou shall bring any charge against God's elect I want you to highlight, it is God who justifies. Point two is God has justified us. We've talked about this over the last handful of weeks, right? Like in verse, uh, or in in chapter three and four and five, this has been an important kind of theme in the book of Romans. What does it mean, though, to be justified? It's a legal term that means to be declared right, but I want you to hear it this way. One commentator says this, it means to have been marked good for a legitimate reason. This is important, that if you are in Jesus Christ in this room, you're a follower of him, you surrender your life to him that no matter what you have ever done and you will do in the future, you have been marked good. Everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do, that Jesus paid for your past sins and your current sins and your future sins, all of it, that you are now marked good. Now, here's why it's important. There's two things in in, in theology called God concept and God image. God concept is what you know to be true about God. God image is how you actually respond to him when when you sin. God concept is God is all loving, unconditional. God image is this is how I actually relate to him. When I do something, I know I I, I, I recoil from him. I think he hates me now, that I have dishonored him, and therefore now he doesn't like me, doesn't love me, that I've separated myself from him. That couldn't be further from the truth. There's a disconnect between what you theologically, biblically know to be true about God and how you and I actually relate to him. This idea that you have been marked good is forever. No matter what you have done, no matter what you will do, God now has marked you good for a legitimate reason. What's the legitimate reason? That you were covered in Christ. We're gonna talk about that in a second. And so when it comes to faith, it means that Christ has paid the price for us. And now that when God sees you, he sees you as clean, he sees you as good, you have been marked good. Now, your next question is this. How can you and I have this confidence that once I have wholly and fully given my life over to Jesus, literally now forever, I'm a member of his family? Well, I want you to pay attention to the last part of the verse. It says, it is God who, what, justifies. If God is the one that declares you righteous and just, it's him and him alone that could make you unjust. But we're going to learn in a second that once you become just or once you become right, you are right and just with God forever. And what this means is that when God looks at you and when he looks at me, he doesn't see his sin, he sees his son. He sees you as holy, he sees you as righteous because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is important you understand this. If you know the Easter story, we're actually going to hop into a part of it in a second. Jesus on the cross says this this Greek accounting term. He screams up to the heavens and says, tetelestai. It was an accounting term that was on receipts in the ancient world. Uh, You went and got a Snickers. It would say tetelestai. What it translates is paid in full. Jesus didn't use a Hebrew word, didn't use an Aramaic word. He used a Greek accounting term to say that your sin and my sin is paid in full. And here's what this means, that Jesus got the wrath of God so you could get the love of God. I'll say it this way. What this means is that on the moment of the cross, he became, in Romans 5, 8, He continues to say things like, he became sin who knew no sin so that you and I could become sons and daughters of God. That there was this exchange that happened on the cross that he became separated from God so that you could become connected. It would be legally unjust for God to punish and accuse Jesus and simultaneously punish and accuse you. So you forever and always get the goodness and love of God because at one point in human history, he got the wrath and separation from God. But the truth is, right, accusations still may come to make you doubt your standing with God, which I know some of us probably have, right? I've done that thing. I did this thing. Where do I stand with God now? So the question is, where do these accusations come from? Really three places. One is the enemy of your soul. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter gives us some insight into who this enemy of your soul is, that if you are team Jesus, if you've given your life over to Jesus, you truly do have a supernatural being that wants to destroy your faith, inhibit you from continuing to follow Jesus Christ. Now, this enemy of your soul really is going to accuse you in a few ways. He's going to speak to you in your mind. He's going to say things like, God couldn't love you because you've done X, Y, or Z. God couldn't use your gifts. You shouldn't be doing X, Y, or Z. He's going to continue to attack you. A real believer wouldn't do things like you have, wouldn't think the things that you do, would be more diligent in studying their Bible, whatever it may be. In John 8, 44, it says, for he is the father of all lies. He will whisper things into your mind that you're not good enough, that God doesn't love you because of whatever you've done. And none of that is true. How does Satan, it's not a topic for where we're headed today, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a, a quick insight on how Satan attacks you. There are three ways. Temptation is number one. He will tempt you to live in a, in a way in which you know you shouldn't. He'll tempt you with things. Number two is discouragement. It's a question. Is living for God really worth it? And finally, is dis, the discouragement? And then the last one is uh, deception. He'll lie to you. He'll try to ch- make you chase other things. The first, the enemy of your soul. The num- number two is other people. Other people will um, say the very same thing as a Satan will do. And then finally, maybe the accuser is you. My biggest critic has, for most of my life has probably been myself, the person that I look at in the mirror. It's the voice in the back of my head that brings up my past mistakes, my failures, and all the reasons why I'm not good enough, why I'm too messed up to be loved, to be a pastor, to do whatever it may be. I'm too broken, I'm too hopeless. And the thing is, those may be reasons why we walk away from other people but we can't fall into the trap of evaluating our standing with God through the way the world evaluates things. There's an author I like. His name's um, uh, Warren Wiersbe, and he says this. God will certainly not accuse us since it is he who justifies us. For him to accuse would mean that his salvation was a failure and we're still in our sins. God has chosen us for his own. Nothing and no one can take that away. Point number three is Christ died for us. Verse 34, it says this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Why do you think of it this way, right? When I was a sinner, I still am, but when I was a sinner and not a saint, when I was completely separated from God in my sin, at my worst, Jesus looked at me and thought to himself, Matt is worth it. And truly, that if I was the only person, if you were the only person that needed him to die on a cross, he still would have done that for you and I. The truth is, for each one of us, regardless of when you became a believer, Jesus knew you. He knew your past, he knew your failure, he knew your history, he knew your mistakes, he knows you better than you do, and he thought that you were worth it. And so he willingly went to the cross and paid the price for your sin and mine. Easter's obviously coming around the corner, and it's this time of the year, right, that we kind of slow down. We take a little bit more time looking at the cross of Christ. When I look at the story of the cross, everything seems to kind of go line in line. Everything just kind of cohesively comes together chronologically. But then there's this one character named Barabbas that kind of interrupts the story in a way that doesn't really kind of make sense. And at first glance, I didn't know why he was in the story. This is a story about Jesus, the Son of God, God in a bod, going to the cross to pay for your sin and mine. Why is this character inserted into the narrative? It doesn't really make sense. I want you to follow with me in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 11 through 17. It'll be up there. It says this. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. The governor was a man named Pontius Pilate. And the governor asked him, are you talking to Jesus, the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At the time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? So not only was Barabbas' first name Jesus, but his last name Barabbas. It's a Joined connection of two words. Bar means son, Abba means father. Jesus Barabbas translates son of the father. Who in the story is the other son of the... How did Jesus identify himself as the son of the father? And so now we have two Jesuses, each a son of the father, but we'll learn that it's the opposite father. See, Jesus was an innocent man who was about to be tried and murdered. And then Barabbas was a guilty man who was about to be, uh, and, was, and was a murderer who was about to be set free. Follow with me in verse 20. It says, but the chief priests, nailed there's persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two, Pilate asks, do you want me to release to you? In this moment, right, Pontius Pilate thinks that he holds the destiny of these two men in the palm of his hands. And he knows that there's a Jewish tradition over Passover where he is going to release one prisoner free. So now Pilate stands on the stage and presents Jesus, the son of God, and Jesus Barabbas the murderer, and he asks a question. Who do you want? And the entire crowd without fault screams out, we want Barabbas. And so the Roman soldiers come up, take off his shackles while Jesus is standing next to him, still bounded in his. So Barabbas walks down to freedom to the crowd and Jesus stands on the stage shackled and beaten and just stands there silent because he knew the will of the Father. This is pivotal. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas to treat Barabbas like Jesus. I'm gonna say this again. For Jesus knew that the Father was going to have to treat Jesus like a Barabbas to treat the Barabbases of the world like Jesus. See, Paul knew that the cross teaches us that Christ was for you at your worst. What would make you think he's not for you now? Right, if he was willing to give you his best when you and I didn't, didn't, didn't deserve it, Romans 8, 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. How much more do you think is going to be for you now, now that you're a part of his family? Earlier, we began with the question. The question was, can anything ever separate us from the love of God? Over the last handful of minutes in, in the book of Romans, Paul has gone over one argument after another to give us the answer, no, there's nothing that can separate you. And so now everything in the last section of our verse today kind of brings us to these final ideas, which is number four, Christ loves us. Follow with me in verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regardless of sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the high point of the book of Romans, the most important probably letters penned here. And obviously, Paul can't go beyond this, and truthfully, you, cannot, you, you we, we can't either. I want you to see it this way. In this list that he gives us, nothing is left out. Everything is there, demons and angels, truth and error, death and life, whether in this creation or another creation, all of it. Paul takes all of that in in that list and says that there's nothing. No being or no force is capable of separating us from the love of Christ. So as I say, end today, and, I'm, and we're going to, in a second, get you guys into groups, I just have a question. Are you convinced of that reality? That there's nothing, not even your own sin, not even your addictions, nothing, not even your failure, not even your inadequacies, nothing that can separate you from God. See, God has already dealt with anything and everything that might separate you from him. That's really the point of this list and what the meaning of this passage is. And so if you're here tonight and you still think that there's some reason God will stop caring for you because of what you did on Friday, because whatever it may be, and the most politely way I can say is your thinking is distorted. You've forgotten the gospel. In these verses, God leaves no room for loopholes. He loves you wholly, he loves you completely, and there's nothing that you could ever do. There is nothing that you could ever do, though God will not forgive you for if you ask for his mercy. In the book of First John chapter 1, verse nine, John wrote this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Righteousness is being in right standing once again with God. I'm gonna read the verse one more time. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise in scripture. Tonight as we end, i want to um, read a quote from a pastor I really like, an author and theologian and apologist named Tim Keller. He says this, Friend, have you been called? Have you been grafted, brought into God's family? Have you found the gospel coming home to your soul with power? Has it changed you? Have you asked God to justify you, make you right? Fine, now realize this. This would not and could not have happened unless the great God of heaven had set his love upon you in the depths of eternity before time and now is infallibly working out his plan to live with you forever in his family. Put your arm around somebody, I'll pray for you guys and I'll get you in groups. Lord, today I, uh, I realize, Lord God, that your love is endless. There's nothing, God, that I've ever done, nothing that I ever will do that'll separate me from you. Lord God, I know that there's somebody in this room that may not truthfully be living the way, God, that they should, and they really struggle with believing, God, that you, you love them and that you can forgive them. Lord, I know you're a God of love, you're a God of hope, you're a God of mercy, and you're a God of forgiveness. I ask, the Lord, that as we continue to study in the book of Romans, chapter eight, verse 31 to 39, that this idea that your love is endless would penetrate our hearts, Father, we love you, we thank you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.